Well, friends, I invite you to turn with me, please, to Esther chapter 9, to the passage that Hazel read for us as we study it together this morning, as we come to think about it together this morning. Esther chapter 9 and verses 20 through 32. I wonder if you ever stop and ask yourself, how on earth have I ended up here? How have I gotten myself into this situation? It's a question uh, that I've been asking myself a lot quite recently. How have I ended up being the assistant minister here in First Port of Down? I suspect it's a question that Robin asks, although probably for slightly different reasons than me. How on earth have we ended up with him as the assistant minister in First Port of Down? But I grew up in an Anglican church in Carrick Fergus. I was licensed for the ministry by the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Ireland. I was ordained to the Christian ministry by the Free Church of Scotland. And yet here I am as the assistant minister in First Port of Down Presbyterian Church in Ireland. How on earth did I get here? Of course, the obvious answer to the question of how I got here is that it was the leading and guiding and directing of God, that it was the hand of God taking me and placing me each step of the way where he would have me go. It was God directing and leading me to get to the point to where I am today. And essentially what we have here in Esther chapter 9 verses 20 through 32 is the answer to the question that the Jews might ask, well, how did we get here? How did we get to the Feast of Purim? How did we get to this point where we're celebrating the Feast of Purim? And the answer is, of course, the same largely, isn't it? The answer is that it's the leading, guiding, directing hand of God, that it's the will and direction and guidance of God that leads the Jews to celebrate the Feast of Purim. We want to think about three things this morning, see three things together. Firstly, we want to think about a feast instituted, a feast instituted. Secondly, we want to see a feast remembered. And then thirdly and finally, a feast obligated, a feast instituted, a feast remembered and a feast obligated. So firstly then, a feast instituted, a feast instituted. And we see that in verses 20 through 22. Last week in chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 9, we saw the climax of the story, if you like, didn't we? We saw the, the end of the story. We saw the end of the narrative. We saw how the Jews went out and killed their enemies, how the Jews gathered together uh, against any who would oppose them, any who would oppress them. We saw the huge number of people who were dead, some 76,000 people. And we ended by noting that it was at that point that the Jews sent gifts of food uh, and other gifts to each other on those days to celebrate. That was where we left the narrative last week. That was how it had finished last week. And it seemed that everything was concluded. Everything had been tied up. And in some senses, verses 20 through 32 of Esther 9 feel a little bit redundant, don't they? Because essentially they just retell the narrative in a shortened form. Essentially they just recap the first eight chapters in a much more condensed form. It feels like a recap of what's gone on before, of what's been told earlier. But there are some important details in this section, some important things that it reminds us of. We see as we come to verse 20 that Mordecai writes all of these things down. Now, now Mordecai writing these things down here probably isn't the whole book of Esther. It isn't the, 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 the canonical book that we come to know as Esther. But rather it's a recounting, a retelling of the battle, a retelling of, of the numbers who have been killed, the number of casualties. It's a retelling of the words of the king. That's what he's written down for the people. And we see that verse 21, Mordecai 
directs the people. Mordecai in his decree directs the people to keep this feast on the 14th and 15th month, 14th and 15th, sorry, day of the month of Adar, year after year after year. It was to be a perpetual feast, a perpetual celebration for the people, a perpetual reminder to the people of the deliverance and the goodness of God. And of course, it's a pattern that we see throughout scripture isn't it time and time again when god delivers his people he instructs them to remember to remind themselves of the good things that he's done for them the truth is that we're people who are prone to forget we're people who are prone to forget god's goodness people who are prone to forget the deliverance of god prone to forget all the ways that god has acted for us all of the goodness that god has displayed to us all of the ways that god has been gracious to us We can be people who get caught up in the next crisis, the next uh, thing that seems to be threatening to engulf our life and forget all of the things that God has done for us. Think about those 10 lepers who were healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 10 of them were healed and went their way, but only one came back to give thanks for what had happened to him. Only one came back to give thanks for deliverance that he had received. And of course, that's true of all of us as humanity. God institutes these feasts, as we see here in Purim, to remind people, to punctuate the calendar of Israel with with memories of his goodness, of his mercy, of his deliverance, of his care for his people. Part of the reason why this Passover was celebrated year after year after year. It gave the people a chance to remember the goodness of God. It gave the people a chance to to remember how God had acted to save them, of the great deliverance that God had worked for them, of how God outstretched his mighty hand and counteracted Pharaoh's mighty hand. Every year when the harvest was gathered in, people celebrated the Feast of Firstfoots to remind them of the provision of God for all of their needs. Year after year after year, the people were reminded that God provided for them, that God gave them the harvest. And of course, as New Testament Christians, we meet Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Why? To remind us of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. To remind ourselves that our Saviour lives. To remind ourselves that our sin has been defeated. To remind ourselves of the goodness and mercy and grace of God. To remind ourselves that sin, death and the devil have been defeated forever. That Christ reigns. So it's important for us to keep these regular rhythms in our lives. To keep these regular rhythms of Sunday by Sunday by Sunday in our lives. Because it gives us an opportunity to pause. It gives us an opportunity to rest. It gives us an opportunity to remember God's great act of deliverance for us. So it's important that we keep these regular feast days. Because they remind us of all that God has done for us. They remind us of all that we have to be thankful for. Week after week, after week. We see the extent of Mordecai's understanding in verse 22, that this was to be a a month of reversals for them. This was to be a month of celebration for them, the month when sorrow was turned to gladness, the month when mourning was turned to dancing. 
turn to holiday, days of feasting and gladness, not days of doom and gloom, days whenever everything seemed lost and yet God reversed it, days whenever they seemed defeated and yet God brought about their deliverance. March 2nd, 2011 is a, a, a date that's inscribed, etched into Irish cricket folklore. A day when Kevin O'Brien, an Irish all-rounder, somehow managed to drag Ireland to victory over England. Ireland were teetering on the edge at 111 for five, chasing down a mammoth 327. And O'Brien somehow dragged them to that total, scoring 113. At one point, Ireland were beaten. At one point, the English players were no doubt thinking about the shower and what they were going to do after the game. But O'Brien managed to bring about the reverse. He managed to bring victory from the jaws of defeat. He managed to reverse the fortunes of the Irish cricket team. And so too for the people of God here, they looked beaten. They looked downtrodden. They looked like Haman's decree was about to wipe them off the face of the earth. But this month would prove to them to be a month of rejoicing, a month of deliverance, a month of celebration, because God worked for them. That's the feast instituted then at the command of Mordecai. But secondly, we see the feast remembered, a feast remembered, and we see that in verses 23 through 28. As we come to verse 23, we see the reaction amongst the people. We see the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. They realise that this event is worth remembering. They realise that that Mordecai is speaking truth here when he says to them, we need to celebrate this. Then verse 24 begins this historic reenactment, this historic retelling of the events that had taken place. The death of Haman, the enemy of the Jews who had plotted and planned to kill them, who had plotted and planned to wipe them out. How he cast lots to try and destroy them. But notice the slight glossing of history that we see in verse 25. Esther 9.25 we read, But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Now in one sense I suppose we can say this is true, can't we? We can say that when uh, King Ahasuerus learned that it was the Jews who Haman was after, that he decreed that this plan should return on his head, that after Queen Esther broke the news that it was the Jews Haman was plotting genocide against, then this plan returned on his own head. But it's not the whole truth, is it? When Haman had floated the idea of killing an entire race of people within his empire, King Ahasuerus kind of just let it go. He said, okay, well, look, the people are in your hand. Here's my signet ring. You go and you do what seems good to you. He didn't try and put a stop to it. He didn't try and return the plan on Haman's head then. He didn't try and convince Haman that it was a bad idea then. Rather, when he found out that his queen was in danger, he acted. When he found out that the life of one who had saved him was in danger, then he acted. As most of you probably know, I I studied history and politics at Queen's uh, University. One of my favourite things to do was, was source work. You know, you're presented with a range of sources and you have to try and work out the different biases that are in them. You have to work out, is it a primary source or a secondary source? Is it uh, something that's written with a particular end, a particular goal in mind? You have to try and work out what action the source was trying to get people to take. You know, you, you, you think of those big 
Lord Kitchener posters pointing out saying, your country needs you. The obvious thing that the, those posters were trying to do was to get people to enlist, to join up. Here Mordecai has no desire to get the king offside. He's no desire to, to, to write the bad points of the king's history, if you like. And so this narrative is recounted in a way that makes the king look as good as possible. It's recounted in a way that, that almost sort of glosses over the bad bits, the genocidal bits of, of King Ahasuerus. Therefore, verse 26, they call these days Purim. Pur was the singular for Lot. Purim was the, 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 the plural. Uh, the, the way that Old Testament feasts often work was that the, the plural form would signify the feast. So this this feast becomes Purim. And because of all this, because of all that happened, because of all that was written in Mordecai's letter, because of all the events that had unfolded, the Jews, verse 27, firmly obligated themselves. But notice that it's not only themselves. The Jews firmly obligated, verse 27, themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. Now this takes us back to another passage, another feast, another institution of a celebration in the Bible. It takes us back to Exodus 12, the institution of the Passover. Moses says to the people, Exodus 12, 26, look, when your children ask you what this means, when your children ask you what the point of all of this is, this is what you can tell them. This is the, the opportunity you've been given to recount the story. This is how you can tell them about God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace. This is how you can tell them how God defeated Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And here we see something similar in, in Esther chapter 9. The Jews obligate themselves and their children. The Jews obligate all who join them to keep this feast. Again, it would be an opportunity for teaching. Again, it would be an opportunity for reminding the people about the goodness and mercy of God. You can imagine the children asking their parents, can't you? Well, look, what does, what does Purim mean? Why do we celebrate this? Who is this Haman that you keep talking about? Why is he considered to be the enemy of the Jews? It was an opportunity for the fathers and mothers to teach their children about the goodness of God. It was an opportunity for them to teach their children about God's deliverance from evil and from sin. I wonder, friends, what opportunities we're making to teach our children about the mercy and the goodness of God. What stories can we tell them about all that God has done for us? When they ask us, well, look, why do we go to church Sunday by Sunday? What do we say? Do we say, well, it's because it's what we do. It's because of habit. It's because of routine. When they ask, why is it important that we go to click? What might we say? What opportunities are we making to teach our kids about the goodness and mercy and grace of God? Now, you might say to me this morning, you might say, well, look, that's all well and good, but we don't really have feast days anymore, do we? Certainly not in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland anyway. So how can I take the lessons of Passover about teaching my children and bring it into today? How can I take the lessons of, of Purim and teaching my children and bring it into today? 
Well, we have a weekly feast day, don't we? We thought about it a few moments ago. Sunday by Sunday is a testimony to the goodness of God. Sunday by Sunday is a testimony to the deliverance of God. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together as people, uh, as God's people, we proclaim that Christ is risen. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together, we proclaim that death has been defeated. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together, we proclaim that Christ has been crucified. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together, we proclaim that Christ is risen. Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together, we proclaim that Christ will come again. Sunday by Sunday is an opportunity to tell the watching world, to tell our children about the deliverance of God from sin. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning to make the most of your Sabbaths, to make the Sabbath your joy and your delight, to make that time for conversations that ask, well, look, what is the point of this? Why do we meet every Sunday? These conversations don't happen in hurried snatches between main course and dessert, but they happen as we make time to celebrate the goodness of God. These days become binding, verse 28, not just on that generation, not just on the generation that experienced deliverance, that experienced God's goodness, but on all generations. That amongst every clan and every province and every city these days of Purim should never fall into disuse and the celebration of these days should never cease. And of course, in some senses, they haven't, have they? I put a, a link on uh, to the Facebook page a few weeks ago about the modern Purim amongst the Jewish community. In my college class in Edinburgh, in my college Hebrew class in Edinburgh, a Jewish lady joined us to learn some Hebrew. I can still remember coming into class one Tuesday morning with bagfuls of little gifts for us. And she proclaimed that it was because they had just celebrated the feast of Purim. They celebrate the day, but they sadly forget the central story of the deliverance of God. They don't make the connection between the deliverance of God from Haman and his wicked plan and the deliverance from sin and death that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. A feast instituted by Mordecai, a feast remembered by the people and their descendants. And then thirdly and finally, a feast obligated, a feast obligated. And we see that in verses 29 through 32. As we come to verse 29, we notice that these letters are sent out using royal authority. They bear the signature not just of Mordecai, not just of the king's high official, but they also bear the signature of Esther, Queen Esther. They're sent to the Jews, verse 30, in all 127 provinces of the king. They're sent of words of peace and truth. Peace here is shalom. It's that idea that all is right with the world. That idea of universal flourishing, which can, of course, only come about through knowing God, through right relationship with God. The word that's used for, for truth here is a word that's often associated with God and his truth. It's a, a a covenant term that's used here, really. The idea that God's promises are what is true and reliable. So as Esther and Mordecai write here, they write using this idea of peace, of universal flourishing in right relationship with God and truth of God's word. It's almost covenant, the language that they're using. And what they want is for this feast to be observed by all of the people. That's the, the, the bind, if you like. That's the united fact, uniting factor that the people are called to recognise. 
If you live in Susa or if you live in the outlying providences, if you live uh, in the citadel or you live in the outskirts, you're called to remember this day, to celebrate the Feast of Purim. Of course, our shalom this morning is found in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Our flourishing is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of him, there is no true flourishing. We can have temporal, fleeting, flourishing, flourishing that lasts for a moment. But outside of Jesus Christ, there is no true flourishing unless we're flourishing in him. Becoming more and more like him, being conformed more and more to his image. Being pressed out of the mould of the world and being pressed into his mould. Our standard of truth this morning is the Bible, the word of God, and there is no other. We live in an age of relative truth, an age where your perception of truth might be slightly different from my perception. But what's important is either your perception or my perception of truth, of what truth is to me, my definition of truth. And as Christians, that, that kind of thinking can easily infiltrate us. But as Christians, what we want to say is, well, no, we do have a standard of truth. It isn't mine and it isn't yours, but it's God's truth revealed in his word. That's our truth. A feast instituted by Mordecai, remembered by the people and their descendants and obligated to be kept day after day. Amen.